Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The leader of the Liberal Party has an opportunity to respect the fact that heating your home in January and February in Canada is not a luxury. And it is, does not make those Canadians polluters. They're just trying to survive. This from a prime minister who burned more jet fuel in one month than 20 average Canadians burn in an entire year. So will the prime minister ground the jet Park the hypocrisy and axe the tax hikes. Mr. Polyev's first day to stand in Parliament during question period rather, is the leader of the official opposition challenging the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And uh, we're going to speak to uh, Mr. Polyev right now. just also want to tell you that in a few minutes we will be speaking with uh, David Neal. He's a meteorologist at the Canadian Hurricane Centre about uh, Fiona and uh, the massive strike of that storm in Atlantic Canada. Mr. Poliev, thanks for joining us. Uh, first chance we've had to talk since you became leader. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Mr. Green. Great to be with you. Let's start with this. Number one issue, you brought it up on Thursday with uh, Mr. Trudeau, inflation. It is reducing largely because of gasoline price drops, but food prices continue in a high inflationary cycle with the Agri-Foods Lab at Dalhousie uh, the survey of Canadians finding 24% of us are cutting back spending on food. If you were on the other side of the aisle today, leading the government, what would you, and just as importantly, what could you do to immediately counter inflation? Well, we have to understand the cause of inflation. The cost of government is driving up the cost of living. A half trillion dollars of inflationary deficits have bid up the cost of the goods we buy and the interest we pay. And inflationary tax hikes, like the carbon tax on gas, heat, and uh, transportation of our goods, uh, is increasing the cost of those goods further. The more Trudeau spends, the more things cost. It's just inflation. So how do we reverse it? One, we have to cap spending with a new pay-as-you-go law that requires government to find a dollar of savings for every new dollar of spending. That would allow us to, the, the taxpayer and the economy, to catch up with the obscene cost of government by, by basically putting a hard cap on it um, and forcing politicians to make the same either-or trade-offs with uh, tax dollars as everyday families and businesses make in their own lives every day. Second, we have to cancel the tripling of the carbon tax. Trudeau wants to jack up uh, gas, heat, uh, and other expenses. So that will, of course, make food more expensive because when farmers have to pay more for their energy and fertilizer and then the truckers who ship the, the, the subsequent produce have to pay more for diesel, well, that all gets passed on to the consumer. Trudeau wants to actually triple the carbon tax uh, in uh, the years ahead, starting with this April. Um, I would cancel that. And finally, instead of creating more cash, we need to create more of what cash buys, grow more food, build more houses, and produce more energy. We need to remove the government gatekeepers that stop us from building homes. We have uh, the fewest houses for per capita of any country in the G7, even though we have the most land to build on. Why? Because local uh, government gatekeepers uh, drive, drive the cost and the time frames for building permits. Uh, and add literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost to every unit. So uh, a federal Polyev government would link the number of infrastructure dollars
dollars a city gets to the number of houses that actually get completed. I'd mandate that every federally funded transit station would have to be pre-zoned for high-density apartments and other housing for young people to live right there, not even needing a car. And I'd sell off 15% of the 37,000 federal buildings that are underutilized and largely empty with work-from-home in place so we can turn that into housing. We need to get off the, remove the fertilizer mandates and the red tape and taxes off our farmers so they can produce more food. And finally, we need to axe the anti-energy laws so we can produce more clean Canadian natural gas and oil here in this country rather than importing the expensive and polluting stuff from abroad. That's my plan. Okay, so let me ask you about energy. And we're going to be speaking with the former head of energy security for France later on this hour. What's your plan, really, to safeguard Canada's energy sector um, and really export our energy to our allies and keep Canadians from facing the kind of massive energy cost increases surfacing Europe, which you just mentioned? And what is realistically achievable, given the renewables demands of environmental organizations, as well, Mr. Polyev, as Canadian restrictions on energy development, um, a lack of proper pipeline infrastructure, and the constant chorus that pipeline construction is a waste of money. As well, you'll be dealing with provincial governments, specifically Quebec, which refuses pipeline construction and opposes LNG terminal construction. What can you log- What can you logically do and logistically do? Well, first of all, we have to repeal Trudeau's anti-energy laws. He passed C-69, which the Canadian Pipeline Association said would mean not a single new pipeline would be built in Canada. Uh, it drags out approvals for seven to ten years. It gives uh, voice at, at the hearings to people who have no involvement whatsoever in the lands that are affected. It deprives First Nations who support energy uh, development of an opportunity to, to achieve it. Um, I would repeal that and replace it with a law that consults First Nations, the majority of whom strongly support oil and gas development, according to public polling, protects the environment, but gets things built. We should have a yes or no within roughly 18 months of a fully completed application being submitted, not seven to 10 years. Second, I would uh, signal my support for liquefied natural gas facilities. We have 1,300 trillion cubic feet of natural gas in Canada. We are suited geographically to ship it to Asia and Europe because Canada is the closest place to both of those continents from North America, far closer than the U.S. Gulf Coast. And we can liquefy with less energy. Why? Because liquefaction involves cooling the stuff down, and we have cold weather here, so it's 25% cheaper. And finally, the three provinces best suited to liquefy our gas have hydroelectricity so that there would be no emissions in the electric, uh, in the electric use. So Quebec, Newfoundland, and B.C. all have hydroelectricity. So zero emissions, low energy use, short shipping distances to displace dirty foreign coal in Asia and displace... Putin's energy monopoly over Europe, which is funding the war in Ukraine, let's turn dollars for dictators into paychecks for our people in this country. So let me ask you then an international question. And Canada is very much involved. We were involved in a controversial move to allow a gas turbine to be removed from Siemens in Montreal, sent to Germany and essentially sent to Putin, who has now closed down the Nord Stream 1 
pipeline, says to the Europeans, well, just open Nord Stream 2, which has never been used, and you'll get all the gas you require. Given what we know about Putin, the eighth month of the war starts today. How would you deal with the Ukraine invasion by Russia and by Putin, who earlier this week threatened the use of nuclear weapons again? What might Canada's role be? And part B here, just as important, would you be inclined to better equip the Canadian military in the face of international threat? Yes. We need to convert more of our military budget from industrial subsidies and expensive procurement to getting the the basic tools that our soldiers, sailors, and airmen need. And uh, we need to uh, shuffle dollars away from aid to foreign dictators to funding for our military, re-equip our military to protect, project strength in the world. Secondly, it's an outrage that Trudeau violated his own sanctions to maintain, allow Siemens to maintain and then ship back to Russia turbines that are used for the gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. You know, first of all, it's, the irony is rich that Trudeau is against pipelines in Canada, but in favor of maintaining Russian pipelines uh, right in Montreal. But the second irony is that we could be supplying Europe with that natural gas had Trudeau not killed LNG Quebec, if he weren't standing away of LNG Newfoundland and Labrador, and if he would support the reverse reversal of the current import terminal in New Brunswick so that it could become an export terminal and, and export more Canadian natural gas to Europe at great profit for our Canadian workers here in this country. So I would, I would use energy as a geostrategic weapon against dictators and invaders like Putin by depriving them of their market dominance and replacing their energy with ours. So it's the eighth month, the beginning of the eighth month of the war, as um, eight months ago today, Russia invaded Ukraine. And news out of Russia today, globalnews.ca, Russian police moved quickly today to disperse peaceful protests against President Vladimir Putin's military mobilization order, arresting hundreds, including some children, in several cities across the vast country. I'm just reading from the newscast here. Police detained more than 700 people, including over 300 in Moscow and nearly 150 in St. Petersburg, according to OVD Info, an independent website that monitors political arrests in Russia. The demonstrations followed protests that erupted within hours Wednesday after Putin, in a move to beef up his volunteer forces fighting in Ukraine, announced a call-up of experienced and skilled army reservists. The Russians are not doing well in the war. They are not doing well. They're being pushed back by the Ukrainian forces. Putin, in that speech, also brought up the specter of nuclear weapons, and they are conducting referenda in four areas of Ukraine and asking Ukrainians, would you rather be Ukrainian or Russian? And again, as I pointed out earlier, the news reports that I've read suggest the question, the referendum or referenda are being conducted by Russian soldiers, armed soldiers, going to people's homes and saying, would you want to be Russian or Ukrainian? 
That's a very fair process, isn't it? Oleksandr Sherba is a former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria, ambassador at large following the 2014 conflict between Russia and Ukraine when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. He's also the author of Undiplomatic Thoughts. Ambassador Sherba has been a guest on this program on a number of occasions over the last eight months. Ambassador, thank you very much for the, uh, for the time. So it's eight months today. Do you believe Ukraine is winning on the ground? Definitely, definitely. Thank you for having me uh, on your show again, Roy. Uh, uh, please call me Alexander, first of all, Ambassador Shelba. We, uh, it's like the 10th time I'm on your show. Okay, glad to. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, we, we are winning this, this war. We have destroyed these uh, 150,000 uh, um, more or less skilled Russian troops that entered our country, tried to occupy our country. Uh, eight months ago, and uh, 50,000 of them are dead. So, uh, over 60,000 are wounded, and many, many of them just refuse uh, to go uh, fight uh, furthermore. Uh, they are saying, let somebody else uh, do that. And because because uh, Putin was losing this war, and it was became very, very obvious in, in the East, in Kharkiv Oblast, uh, he had to do something drastic. So instead of you know fighting with quantity, he he decided to to fight with quality. A, uh, B uh, to raise this um, you know uh, uh, World War Two sentiment uh, in uh, Russia that we are fighting the fascists, the Nazis again, and uh, it's all they are against us again, and we have to defend our motherland. Uh, I uh, grew up in Soviet Union. Most of these men uh, go into war now. They, uh, like me, myself, um, grew up uh, watching World War II movies and dreaming about being heroes, you know, fighting uh, Nazis. Uh, but Ukrainians grew up ever since. And Russians, uh, many Russians seem stuck in this, you know, uh, uh, strange notion that uh, uh, the whole world is against them and the whole world is Nazis and uh, um, they need to defend Russia from something. So this is the uh, big picture, which doesn't mean that uh, the situation isn't uh, dangerous. Uh, as uh, a friend of mine, uh, English guy who lives here, uh, says, uh, well, they're unskilled, they're unprepared, but that's uh, a lot of uh, men to kill. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah that's so a... it's, it's, it's a difficult situation, but we'll get back. So this Putin statement on uh, Wednesday, 300,000 reservists, as you say, that's a lot of people mobilized. The referendums in four areas of Ukraine and the threats of nuclear weapons. How do you assess that? How, it's difficult to assess Putin because I think to many people, he's just not he's just not he's not mentally well. Um, how dangerous do you assess that particular statement of Putin on Wednesday to be? Well, it is very dangerous. Uh, Putin has uh, absolute deficiency of empathy, of, uh, you know, uh, this feeling of uh, admitting uh, the ability to admit that he was wrong. He is ready to take uh, down to the grave uh, not only uh, his government, but also his whole nation, maybe part of Europe. And he 
I think uh, he is capable of using nuclear weapons uh, in Europe, in Ukraine. Uh, it's absolutely possible. Uh, I also think that he is getting ready to uh, strike and hit hard against uh, Ukrainian infrastructure once it gets colder in Ukraine, once it's frosting. So it will be all-in tactic, and if we Ukrainians, with the help of, uh, of, of all democratic, freedom-loving nations throughout the world, uh, keep our ground uh, through this uh, last, uh, uh, you know, desperate attempt to break our will, uh, I think I think uh, Putin is on his way out. Is there a power structure be? behind Putin that is more reasonable, more thoughtful than him. And I, you know, I just looked at, uh, at these, these numbers here, these stories. Eleven prominent Russians and nine of their family members have died of accidents, suicides, murder-suicides, and illnesses in recent weeks and months. The former head of Moscow's Aviation Institute is the most recent to die this week in a supposed fall from a third floor of a building under construction. Vasily Melnikov, the owner of a medical supplies firm, was stabbed to death, as were his wife and their two young sons. Less than a month later, the vice president of a Russian bank and his wife and 13-year-old daughter were shot to death. A pistol was found in the hand of the dead bank, bank vice president. One day after those killings, Sergei Pratsenya, the CEO of an energy company, was found hanged to death at his villa. His wife and daughter had been stabbed to death. This is in Spain. And Pratsenya was found with a bloody knife and axe in his immediate vicinity. This is hard for people to accept. Uh, two additional energy executives and experts died, one in a drowning on the Sea of Japan, and an executive of Luck Oil died after falling from a hospital window. And Luck Oil had spoken out against the invasion of Ukraine. I find it very difficult, Alexander, to believe these are just deaths of their being reported. Well, I always said that Putin is not a person. Putin is an organization. It used to be called KGB. Now it's FSB. And nobody ever in the history of the nation, of humankind, had the power as uh, as great, as big as uh, these uh, group of comrades from the Soviet times, if you consider. So at their disposal, all the Russia's money, uh, all the Russia's nuclear weapons, uh, and um, all the Russian media, all the Russian, basically most of the Russian uh, intelligentsia, journalists, and uh, he can do whatever he wants, but quite frankly, in the last couple of weeks, it seems like um, he is more or less uh, the only one making really, really making decisions. Everybody else, all these, you know, murderers, this whole murderous organization behind him, they just uh, uh, they his slaves, uh, his 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 uh, hitmen. Yeah. You know, it's uh, and it's scary if you consider how much power these people have over the whole world. Um, it's, 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 it's scary. It is scary. It's like a criminal organization of, of unknown or un, previously unex, not experienced proportions. Alexander, the, the referendums or referenda that are taking place in four parts of your country 
The Russians don't even control all of the territory, but they're demanding, if you go send a soldier to a house and say, do you want to be Ukrainian or Russian, and the soldier is armed, I think that is a demand. That's not a question. So they're going forward with that, and you and I both know Putin's going to say, well, we won. The people in these four areas want to be Russian. So a precondition for any agreement with Kiev uh, will be that those four areas are ceded to Russia. Do you agree with that? And if you do agree with that, do you think there could be the reality that the West, perhaps led by Washington, would say to your country, give them that and let's get out of this? What do you think? Well, uh, at no point uh, during this war uh, were we doing what the West was telling us. Uh, we uh, were never as much in driver's seat as uh, we are right now. Uh, and there is only one possibility for, I think that's my feeling, for the West, for uh, Biden administration, for most uh, decent governments uh, in Europe. Uh, I don't mean Hungary, for, for, for example, but most decent countries and decent nations uh, uh, won't tell us until we say ourselves, you know what, we are done with fighting. We cannot win this war. We uh, uh, are giving up. And many people would be happy if that happened because it uh, uh, would mean uh, lower gas price and maybe business as usual with Russia in a couple of uh, you know uh, years. But we are not going to say it. We are not going to do this. And as long as we are standing our ground, no sham referenda and no, you know, demonstrations of some ex-anti-vaxxers who are now, uh, you know, uh, still in Putin's corner and doing Putin's business. We will we'll change that. And I think um, the, the, the line between good and evil was never as clear as uh, in these last eight months. And uh, the majority of people, the majority of governments, uh, would understand what a sleazy move that would be uh, to uh, give up on Ukraine in this kind of situation. I don't believe in that. Yeah, it would be sleazy. And I hope it doesn't happen. Now, what I find interesting as well, and you have the perspective of having lived in the Soviet, former Soviet Union and grown up there. In the 1980s, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and they were handed a very serious defeat by the Afghans. And the Soviet people, if I remember correctly, put a lot of pressure on uh, on the Soviet government and um, on who was the president? I... It was uh, Gorbachev. Gorbachev, of course. So they were putting pressure on him and saying, our boys are going over to fight a war that we don't want any part of, and they're bring, you're bringing them home dead. So stop this war. And Gorbachev and the Soviets got out. Russians now, after Wednesday's speech by um, Putin, are massing the border to try to get into Finland, going to airports, trying to get out of Russia because they don't want to be uh, forced into the army, many of them. Do you think there could be a situation where Putin is under such public pressure to back off and stop that, that we could have a repeat of Afghanistan? No, I, unfortunately, I don't see such public pressure in Russia. No. Uh, I think, unfortunately, when I compare what I remember from Soviet Union, and I remember quite a lot, uh, and today's Russia, 
I'm sorry to say, but Soviet Union was way more peaceful and reasonable and understandable um, to, and accessible to common sense than today's Russia. Because um, I remember uh, I grew up uh, to the tune of songs of how beautiful peace is and how uh, terrible war is. My uh, grandfathers, grandmothers uh, started every um, uh, dinner with uh, the toast uh, to peace. Uh, and uh, let's hope there is no war. And it was the same in many, not only in Ukrainian, in many Russian families. Most important thing is there is no war. And I was laughing about it. What war? It's just ancient history. Now I, now I remember it and I think about it. Today's okay. Russia, uh, partly uh, flee, uh, fleeing from this war, partly a minuscule part, you know, opposing the war uh, openly, but a huge part uh, of Russia bought uh, this war and uh, digged in. And thank God, thank God that... Uh, this uh, uh, huge mass of people is uh, uh, unskilled, unprepared, uh, uh, not very smart, uh, uh, don't have good uh, commanders, uh, and live in a corrupt country. Okay. Because if it wasn't the case, it, we would be in even bigger trouble. You know that in Iran, you've been hearing the news that in Iran, there's a tremendous amount of social unrest at the moment as uh, the Iranian people are demonstrating uh, vigorously over the death of Masi Amini, 22-year-old woman who challenged the Tehran regime's hijab laws. And after being arrested by Iran's morality police, Ms. Amini died in hospital last Friday after spending three days in a coma. The uh, president of... Uh, Iran has said the regime will, quote, deal decisively, end quote, with the protests. And he denies that um, Ms. Amini was hurt or hit, assaulted by the officers who arrested her. Uh, reports, various reports are saying that these officers, the morality piece, police, rather, beat Ms. Amini's head with a baton and banged her head against one of their vehicles. So... There is unrest and anger in Iran. Masi Alinajad is an Iranian journalist, author, and women's rights campaigner. She hosts Tablet, a talk show on Voice of America's Persian service. She's been repeatedly attacked by the Tehran regime. Last year, police uncovered a kidnapping plot to force Ms. Alinajad back to Iran. And in August, police arrested a man who was repeatedly seen outside her home in her Brooklyn neighborhood. The FBI arrested him, found a loaded AK-47, uh, with filed serial numbers. So um, I just want to tell you this. I was reading a CNN story in which Ms. Alinja told the reg regime in Tehran, go to hell. I'm not scared of you. I have only one life. You care about power. I care about dignity and my freedom like millions of other people in Iran. You can kill me, but you cannot kill the idea. The idea is just fighting for freedom and dignity. Masi Alinajad, uh, her book is The Wind in My Hair, My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. She's also the founder of White Wednesdays. Masi, thank you for coming back on the program. We talked uh, about Iran and about another issue two years ago. How are you? Um. I'm trying to be good. Thank you so much for having me again. But the situation in Iran is just unbelievable. Uh, at the same time, my heart is broken, but I see the bravery of Iranian women in front line. Uh, let's just talk about them. 
Yeah, please do. Let's t- talk to us, please, about what it is the women in Iran who have decided that they're not going to wear the hijab, no matter what the morality police or what the regime does to them. What are they facing when they decide to just free their hair? Um, let me tell you about Mahsa Amini, because you know that Mahsa was not even unveiled. Mahsa is a Kurd. Her Kurdish name is Gina, which means uh, full of life. She just came for a vacation to Tehran. A bit of her hair was visible. That's all. That's all her crime. She got arrested by hijab police and bitten up by hijab police and then um, she was murdered. You know, Iranian regime tried to deny it, but I, I, I'm sure that you've been following my campaign, White Wednesday. Yes, I have. White Wednesdays and my camera is my weapon. You see that hijab police have, have been bitting uh, Iranian women for years. For years and years, Iranian women facing the brutality of morality police. And Mahsa uh, was just one of the victims. And now her brutal death is becoming a turning point for Iranian women. Iranian women are furious. Right now they are in the streets alongside men, uh, taking off their headscarves, burning their headscarves in public. Some of them cutting their hair to show, I mean, their anger. It's kind of grieving, protesting. But let me tell you something. Uh, maybe your audiences have no idea when we talk about morality police. Morality police are like a bunch of people uh, trying to force women to follow Sharia laws. It means that in the streets, they just walk around, come to you and tell you that you're not wearing proper, inappropriate hijab. That's what happened to Mahsa Amini. So um, now Iranian women in the streets are not only protesting against hijab, they are clearly chanting against dictator and saying that enough is enough. This is 21st century, and we want to have freedom and dignity. So, so that people understand, there is a morality police. That's an actual police force within Iran that patrols the streets and decides whether you're appropriately dressed according to the regime's regulations. And if you're not, then you face arrest and, well... Sometimes you face... You, sometimes, yes. Lose your life. Uh, this is shocking. This is shocking. In 21st century, this is happening, that the police come to you and says that, okay, now you're on vague in your car, then you have to pay fine. You have to pay money to show your hair. This is ridiculous. But forget about that. Let me tell you something which is more frustrating for Iranian women. Right now, in 21st century, a seven-year-old girl, I'm repeating myself, a seven-year-old girl should cover her hair. If not, she won't be able to go to school. She won't be able to she won't be able to live and exist in her homeland. This is my beloved country, Iran, where women had the freedom to choose what they wanted to wear before the revolution. But the Islamic revolution became a revolution against women. 
I am furious, you know, because when we talk about, I myself have been talking about this for eight years. When I launched the campaign, um, I remember that many women in the West were like, uh, for feminists, uh, all the feminists in the West, they were like saying, my body, my choice. And, and I was like, yes, now these women are going to support me as well. But what makes me sad that for Western feminists, when we talk about the barbaric laws of hijab in Iran, they they keep quiet. But they think that this is our culture, so they shouldn't touch this issue. They, they're worried that if they talk about forced hijab, morality police, women are being beaten up in Iran and Afghanistan to cover themselves. They think that it's going to cause Islamophobia. So in my opinion, make long story short, for years and years, we have been warning about the danger of morality police. But now, because of the brutal death of Mahsa Amini, finally, a lot of uh, Western feminists, activists, celebrities are paying attention to Iranian women. Yeah. The uh, the protests in the streets, I've seen the videos and you've posted them on uh, on your Twitter account at Aline uh, Aline. Alina Jad Masi, yeah, in sort of last name first. Alina Jad Masi, I've seen the videos, and it's it looks to me like the protests that we saw previously, like with the Green Movement, but the West did nothing to help, nothing to intervene, nothing to assist the people who found themselves alone facing guns and police, and eventually they were just overwhelmed. I want to talk to you about what's going on in Iran again, Masi, but tell us what it is that makes you so objectionable and so, why are they so afraid of you? Um, they're afraid of women. They're afraid of women. Because, look, the only way that you can understand you go to Iran or Afghanistan, the only sign that you can get this is an Islamic country is through us, through women. So basically, Islamic Republic, Taliban, ISIS, uh, all the religious dictatorship, they use our bodies, women's platform, to write their ideology on our bodies. So when we resist that, for, for me, of course, they came after me in New York. If if it was not the FBI, I would have been kidnapped by the Islamic Republic and executed in Iran. Why my crime is giving vote to Iranian women against compulsory hijab? Echoing the voice of uh, brave women with society saying that we don't want to be forced to wear hijab. We want the Islamic Republic. This is 21st century, and they are rejecting Islamic regime. They want to have a secular democratic country, and we deserve that. We deserve that. And that's that's why they hate uh, they hate me. And, and another thing is, look, there is no media inside Iran to uh, give voice to Iranian women right now in the street with men uh, fighting against the Islamic Republic. So what scares the regime that they don't want to show the brutality of the police, and they don't want to... Uh, uh, the rest of the world know what's going on in Iran. They hate me because I have uh, 10 million followers. When I receive videos and I post it, it, it goes everywhere. It goes in different medias, in different countries, and uh, celebrities reacted to, uh, to, the, to the videos. That scares the regime. That actually ruined their credibility. So that's why they hate me. Yeah, they've, well, they've tried to kill you, tried to kidnap you. 
and 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 they've been after you for for some time now. What what do you see happening in Iran this time? We've seen the protests previously over similar issues, not necessarily identical, but similar, and they were very very strong protests. People were asking for the West to support the Green Movement. Many people remember that. That was when Mr. Obama was president. Um, what do you want the West to do? You had a message for Joe Biden. What do you want the West to do to provide support for the people of Iran who are challenging the regime? Look, when you mention Obama, it's just, again, it makes me really sad that people were chanting his name in the streets. You know, Obama, he is with us. And people were like using, make, making slogan and saying that you with us or with them. So it seemed that Obama, at the same time, when people were fighting against the regime Green Movement, Obama was trying to send a secret letter to the Supreme Leader of Iran to get a deal. Again, the same happening here now. And that's really sad because, look, human rights, women's rights should be bipartisan, should be, should, should be like global matter, not internal matter. So what I, what I actually try to say is Biden administration now his focus is to just get a nuclear deal. Of course, we hear a lot of Democrats right now uh, condemning, tweeting about this, showing their solidarity with uh, Maso Amini. But let me be honest with you. We don't need empty words. We don't need that. Iranian women are getting killed after Maso. Uh, there are more than 40 people got killed among them. There are, I have to name them, Ghazaleh, Hanane, Mahsa, Irfan. A lot of young people are getting killed. Why? Because wanting to have freedom and dignity. But at the same time, uh, the Western country trying to get a deal, burying human rights under nuclear deal. But what we want is clear. First, help Iranians to have the internet. Because the Iranian regime cut down the internet to kill more people. Second, the West should cut all the ties with these savages. Third, it's just unbelievable that I'm asking this. Very, 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 very simple. Right now, Canadian, German citizen, British citizen, US citizen, Swedish citizen, Belgium citizen, I mean, many citizens from Western countries are in Iranian prison and they're being used like bargaining chip to get a deal from the West. I want the West to be as united as uh, dictators around the world. Yeah, we must then remember. Cut your, I mean, yeah, they, they just downgrade your rela diplomatic relation with these savages and ask them to release all these political prisoners. Yeah. Put revolutionary guards they have been, in the terrorist organization. They have been treated rather gently by Western nations. We must remember in this country that Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 was shot down by yeah. two Iranian missiles and more than 50 Canadian citizens lost their lives, were killed. But by, you remember that, that the Iranian regime was denying that yes, for three they were. days. Do yes, you they remember were. that? I do remember that. And I've spoken to family members, people who lost family on that particular flight. They've talked talk to us on this program. Now, the, the people in Iran are uprising again, rising up against the regime. They will suffer again at the hands of the regime. Do you think there is enough popular sentiment 
that eventually, if not this time, maybe this time, I don't know, you tell me what you think, that the, no, people, no, that the people will in fact win. To be honest, um, Iranians are frustrated, and that is why they say that we are ready to pay the price. Look, in 2019, in bloody November, Iranian regime killed 1,500 people. So these people who are now taking to the streets, they know how brutal this regime is. But still, they made up their mind to yeah. get rid of this dictator. I watched them. So you see, this, yeah. I, I watch this. this is the time. Yeah, I watch these protests yeah. that are taking place now. And I see, these, I, see the, I see the people just determined, and they have no weapons. They're just them, the people, against the regime. Um, Masi, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I, I appreciate the opportunity yeah. to speak with you. Thank you so much for giving uh, Iranians voice, because this is now they need. Thank you. UCP in Alberta is going to announce its new leader and premier on October the 12th. Travis Daves is a candidate for the UCP leadership, and he's the former Alberta Minister of Finance. If he wins, he becomes the premier, and uh, he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mr. Taves, how are you? Doing well, Roy. Good to have you with us. It's good to be here. So why you as leader of the UCP? Uh, what, what, what would you bring to the premier's position in the province of Alberta? Roy, I'm confident that I can bring a strong and principled and proven leadership. Right now, uh, leadership that uh, can unite this party and movement, and leadership that can unite Albertans in uh, in the spring of 23. We're heading into a general election quite quickly here in the province, and and I believe we need we need leadership right now that firstly can unite uh, party members, the the conservative movement, and then go on and cast a vision. Uh, that uh, Albertans can can support. I'm confident I can provide that kind of leadership. So when you look at your party, and it's a new party, it's a young party anyway, and you formed government with Mr. Kenny as leader and premier, and uh, looked very promising when you uh, when you won as a party. What went wrong, and and how can you, as if you become the leader, how do you heal the rifts within the party? Well, Roy, the last couple of years. You know, certainly the pandemic has been really tough here in Alberta, as it, as it has been across the country. And I believe it's been, you know, in, in large part, the pressures around the pandemic that, that have really uh, created division, quite frankly, division across the province, across our communities uh, in so many areas. And our conservative movement has, has not been spared of that division. Uh, and as, as I noted, I believe unity is absolutely critical. Uh, and I, I believe I'm uniquely positioned to, to bridge an important gap that, uh, or a significant gap that exists in, in the party and province. And that is uh, what, what I would characterize as a rural-urban divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly there's, you know, there, there's, we've all tended to live uh, off in our own silos the last couple of years. And as I travel around the province, I certainly... Um, certainly perceive a bit of a rural-urban divide. I believe I'm uniquely positioned to bridge that divide. I've been the Minister of Finance here in the province, been privileged to serve Albertans in that capacity over the last three years, and that certainly connected me well into, uh, you know, uh, corporate Alberta um, and our large urban centres. But I'm a rancher from rural Alberta, and um, I really believe I'm uniquely positioned to bridge that gap. Secondly, 
you know, as I travel around the province, um, I hear from so many Albertans who feel they haven't had a voice, feel they haven't been heard. And, you know, I bring a different, uh, unique leadership approach and style, uh, a style that um, certainly in my past leadership roles has been one to unite those around the table, to ensure that everyone around the table has a voice. I believe that's critical right now at a time when so many in our province feel feel they just haven't been heard. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of that. Certainly there's a great deal of uh, dissatisfaction among uh, the electorate, whether it's provincially or federally, any anywhere in the country. There's a sense that government doesn't listen to us. And I just had a conversation earlier today with an American uh, guest who was talking about that very reality with, with Americans, just feel their government doesn't listen to them. But let me ask you this. This is a big issue in, in your province. It's a big issue across the country. What do you do? If you're the premier of Alberta and um, the federal government, whoever happens to lead it at the moment, it's Trudeau, and the federal government brings forward regulations or brings forward legislation and uh, it doesn't, shall we say, cooperate with the interests of the province of Alberta. You know what I'm getting at. How do you as premier of the province deal with that? How do you handle disputes with the federal government over legislations or initiatives they bring forward? Well, this is, I mean, it's going to depend on the issue, but the first thing uh, I would do if I served Albertans as premier is ensure that I protect provincial jurisdiction. And, and we would certainly, I would certainly be prepared to use the courts immediately whenever I believe the federal government is intruding on provincial jurisdiction. As you probably know, we as a government uh, took a reference challenge against the, the federal government on on Bill C-69, the Federal Environmental Assessment Act. We've We've won our case at the Alberta Court of Appeal uh, with a four-to-one decision. Um, the, the feds are going to appeal it to the Supreme Court of Canada. So, uh, again, I would use every legal means to defend Alberta's jurisdiction for sure. But, you know, I would also work, uh, look to work with other provinces, like-minded provinces. And, I, you know, I think back to the, um, the, the recent case where the federal government was looking to bring in uh, labeling requirements for ground meat products, requirements that really I, I don't believe were at all based in science and certainly inconsistent with so many of the other food labeling requirements out there. And, and you know, we, we as Western provinces, certainly prairie provinces, uh, together with the industry, farmers and ranchers, all pushed back on the federal government and pushed them back into their corner successfully. Uh, they They relented on that labeling requirement. And so, you know, that's encouraging. I believe it is possible to work together with other provinces, uh, bring forward a really, um, you know, a, a strong push that's defensible and rational and actually, uh, you know, defend our vital economic interests. Yeah. How do you respond to the uh, leadership of Pierre Polyev for the Conservative Party of Canada? He was a guest on this program starting the show today. And uh, does Mr. Polyev, uh, I, I know you feel very positively about it, but, uh, but put that into words for us. How would uh, Polyev, Prime Minister, work with a uh, Taves Premier of Alberta? Well, I'm I, very confident we would um, w- work well together. I got to know Pierre when he was finance critic uh, in the Conservative Party of Canada as, as Her Majesty's official opposition. And I was finance minister here in Alberta, of course, facing some real significant fiscal challenges um, as we took over from an NDP government. And, you know, it didn't take long in my conversations with Pierre to 
to recognize that we shared, you know, a, a, a general, a, a similar approach, fiscal policy approach. Uh, and uh, look, the federal government has uh, deep fiscal challenges right now, and and I would uh, I would expect that uh, Pierre's you know fiscal policy approach would uh, would largely be that con- uh, of consistency with with Alberta's approach. We've made great progress here in Alberta, bringing the province uh, to balance uh, actually with a to a balanced budget through all three years of the fiscal plan. On top of that, uh, Pierre you know, has roots in Alberta. I believe he understands the West, um, you know, like, like perhaps some of the other uh, leadership um, hopefuls didn't. And I'm confident that we could work well with Pierre here in Western Canada, here in Alberta, to, uh, to, to make fundamental changes uh, that would provide more equity uh, within this confederation, particularly for resource-based provinces. You would also uh, open the door to the party to uh, Drew Barnes, uh, who's been a guest on this program. I spoke with Mr. Barnes several times over the last few years. And uh, Todd Lowen as well. Talk to us about that, please. Well, you know, again, unity is critically important at this point uh, within our party and movement, and quite frankly, more broadly uh, across the province. And following this leadership race, I believe it's an opportunity to push the reset button and uh, I, you know, my leadership style is one uh, that that is um, inclusive as opposed to exclusive. And I would look forward to, and certainly from my perspective, to inviting those members back to work constructively uh, with with the government uh, to advance uh, the interests of Albertans. All right. Well, Mr. Taves, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, and uh, we'll see how it all turns out, uh, actually, in a matter of days. And uh, if you win the leadership, you become the premier, and I'd invite you to come back and speak to us as the premier. Roy, I would look forward to that. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. How do you, uh, how do Albertans get a hold of you, and how do they get a hold of your campaign? Well, maybe the easiest way is to go to my website, at tavesforalberta.ca. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to reach out. We've certainly got a team that are responding to all inquiries. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 